You're listening to the OneOfUs.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. From the depths of pop culture rises a beast of unimaginable obsession to wreak havoc on the podcasts of man. This is the Giganticast. <laughs> This is Radio Austin, attempting to contact Norman England in Japan. Come in, Norman. Come in. Yes, this is Norman from Tokyo, bringing you the latest kaiju news. You know, I just realized that joke about Rodan attacking Moscow is uh, simultaneously not as fun as it used to be, but it is weirdly topical. But we can also just move on. Okay, yes. <laughs> it's been a while since I've uh, done a new episode of the Gigantic Cast. But for those of you who are just joining us, uh, I don't know why you would, but uh, hey, you know, maybe you've already picked up the subject of our episode today and you wanted to know more about it. But uh, just in case, for those of you who don't know, my name is Matt Frank. I'm a comic book artist and illustrator. I have worked on Godzilla and Ultraman and Gamera and a bunch of stuff that you probably do know about if you're uh, listening to this show. This is the uh, first time in a while that I've had a, a special guest on. I'm very excited about this, but uh, I have with me Norman England. Uh, say hi, Norman. Hi, Norman. That's like the oldest, crappiest joke in the world. I apologize to your listeners, but it was just too delicious to resist. I set you up for that. I set you up. No, anyway, thank you very much, Matt, for having me on your podcast. And yes, I know it's been inactive for a while, so it's kind of nice to be able to join you and get your podcast going again. Sure. No, I'm I'm really glad that, uh, like I said, I'm glad you're here you're here uh, with me. I mean, the listeners, the regular listeners know that Giganticast is not really much of a regular show. It is something that I will just kind of do when the mood strikes me, but I'd like to do them a little more regularly than once every four to five months. <laughs> I think the last one I did was the Godzilla uh, anniversary screening where my assistant and I went to go see the original 54 film. Uh, I and... actually listened to that. Oh, yeah, really? What, yes. What'd you think? <laughs> Quick on the spot. <laughs> uh, uh, it was the greatest podcast I ever heard in my life. Okay. That's damn right. Well, Norman, for those who are not familiar with uh, you and your work and what you have been doing and what you're up to, do you want to give a little introduction for yourself? Sure. Well, as you said, I, I live in Tokyo. I've been living in Japan since 1993. Even though the back of my book says 92, that's a kind of a mistake on my part. But I have been visiting Japan since 90, and I made the move in 93 here. I lived in Osaka, kind of meandered around there for nine years until I became involved with Fangoria magazine, other magazines. And it was really through my association with Fangoria where my editors were very interested in giant monster films. And I've been a giant monster fan myself since, I think, catching Godzilla, King of the Monsters version. 
not the nice. new one, but catching that because that's all we had until the eighties, you know, in on TV in the New York area. I'm born in California, but I grew up in New York since I was two or three and catching a TV screening uh, in 1965, I guess, you know, and being enamored wow. by that, you know, and seeing, you know, whatever films I could get my mom to take me to, like War of the Gargantuas. I saw that in the theater three times. The first film I saw <laughs> more than once. That's how nice. much I was like, I, I you know, they're, they're so visually oriented, you know, I mean, I've been a lifelong fan of this stuff. My editors at Fangoria, you know, they're really like, we love this kaiju stuff, you know, and uh, can you do, <laughs> you know, some interviews and things for for us? And they, you know, my first one was an interview with uh, Shusuke Kaneko, and he had just finished Gamera 2. I'd actually seen Gamera 1 in 95. A friend of mine, Leo Anzai, who's also active in this kind of otaku world, uh, sure. he said, hey, there's a new Gamera film coming out, and I, you know, and I can get us into the screening over at Daya. And this is in Osaka. I'm like, yeah, sure, Gamera. I love Gamera. I mean, that last film, you know, one of the things when I came to Japan was I was able to rent on VHS Gamera films I had never seen. Because we oh, didn't have course. the access, you, you know, back in the U.S. And I'm like, that last one, the... Gamera Super Monster. Super Monster. I mean, man, that was yeah. awful. Which now I've come to <laughs> adore the movie for reasons outside of Gamera. Because it's like a real time capsule of when oh, it sure. was shot. Like, really? They're bringing that back? Okay, let's go. And like, oh my God. As I think a lot of listeners have experienced, like, this film was like, damn, this is... This is the way it's supposed to be, you know? <laughs> and then Gamma 2 came out. And I think it was really like, yeah, Gamma 2, I saw Gamma 2. I, I think I preferred the first one, but I mean, Gamma 2 was also equally like adultish and, and cool, sure. you know? And, and then Fangoria was like, can you interview the director? And I'm like, I don't know. Can I interview the director? Because <laughs> I had met them. I had gotten a contact because I was on this set of, um, I'm a kind of a George Romero fanatic. So I had been hired by Capcom, the game maker, to fly to L.A. when um, Romero was shooting a TV commercial for Resident Evil 2. I was back yeah. in like uh, the fall of 97. And I met Anthony Ferrante, who was a writer. He went on to direct those Sharknado films. Um, <laughs> I, I know. What a connection. I mean, he made he was a big Fango writer, and he was there on the set, and I was taking photos. And he was like, oh, can I use your photos? And then Fangoria contacted me, and one of my photos became a cover of Fangoria. I was like, oh, damn, I'm like a totally amateur photographer. And I got a photo, my first like printed photo was the cover of Fangoria. Cool. So anyway, that started the dialogue there. And then as detailed in my book, which we'll talk about, you know, I got into this world of kaiju, you know, through them as kind of like my door opening you know, became friends with Kaneko and involved myself through the whole Millennium series and, and other films, too. I mean, I covered the whole J-horror period. And then eventually, you know, at the time I supported myself because no one makes money writing, you know, writing articles, of magazine articles, not. you know, even though I even though I would do at my I would say if you collected all my Fangoria articles, it would be like eight issues solid which is kind of a lot, you know? So I did a lot of stuff, you know, back 20 years ago for Fangoria. But then eventually, so I was teaching English like a lot of foreigners do to make ends meet. And that was actually was a job right. I really enjoyed. And what was nice about it was I could work 40 hours a month in Japan and make as much as I was doing back in New York, working 40 hours a week, 
you know, so it was like a slightly, I always called moving to Japan was like semi-retirement for me. So, oh, man. Um, and it gave what me a, that, what a... it gave me the freedom, you know, to, you know, to kind of get a bet, become a better writer and yeah. to go to these movie sets and, you know, meet people. And then I was able to transform that into work on movie sets, doing stills for companies. And now today I make, you know, the bulk of my income from subtitling Japanese films, you know. So I've subtitled at least 120 movies so far in Japan. And it's, yeah, I'm working on like three movies right now. And I've got another one next month. And, and it's great. I mean, I love it. And, and it really goes back to, you know, my love of, cinema a fantastic cinema you know and mm -hmm. so i wouldn't say like i'm a kaiju fan per se but i'm a fan <laughs> of you know all of this kind of stuff especially me i was born in 59 so i kind of grew up when things were you know going through development like that peak year in 68 yeah. you know with planet of the apes 2001 and then star trek on tv you know the Irwin allen tv shows and then you know the it Exorcist, really is a sweet spot of popular culture at that time and jaws coming out in seven and 75 i saw that on opening night second night i mean it was incredible you know star wars stuff all the 80s 80s stuff it was really a good time the development process. I'm, I'm a guy who's really into the creative process, you know, so watching things develop was very fun from an audience's point of view. And then the same thing, you know, for me kind of, you know, I got into the Japanese stuff pretty much at the tail end of the whole, you know, before the advent of CGI taking over everything. So I feel kind of fortunate, like, I guess we'll talk about that you know, my book yeah. covers that. Yeah, just the Japanese craftsmanship, you know, that goes into, you know, their kaiju sets, which is something I find very fascinating. You know, I made a documentary about that, bringing Godzilla down to size that's on the Rodan or the Gargantua's DVD set. I got that one on my shelf. You know, which uh, <laughs> I wish we were trying to get that or Criterion was trying to get that on to their recent Godzilla set, do a like a remastered version of the film, but sure. for like I like to say for reasons, it didn't <laughs> it didn't make it on there, and it, it actually held up the release of that until finally Criterion is like we can't like sit on this any longer, and and fans of like Toho films will know there's always some sort of issue with releasing extras on their stuff you know that's why yeah. the fans are always like how come like this movie came out in japan it's like loaded up the yin yang with uh with the uh, extras and the the u.s version comes out with you know nothing just the film you know yeah if you're you might be lucky and get a couple of trailers uh in some of the more blurry some blu-ray releases and i mean it was so funny because the showa criterion set as far as special features go was overflowing compared to some of the godzilla home video releases but uh again it it's comparatively anemic no the uh, arrow i have to say that you worked on that the arrow gamma set i mean that was like yeah. you know they the went, thing that impressed me on that was like you know they had they have all those interviews with staff members like everyone yes they translated all good translations too i have to say i'm i'm, I'm very critical of bad translations i thought those were good i don't like the subs on gamma three on a couple of those and those are ones that were ported over and i wish arrow had hired me to write them i could have done a better <laughs> job on it but sometimes i think like destroy all monsters subtitles are very good but anyway i mean that had a lot of very impressive extras that were ported over especially those chats with all the it's almost like a historical 
archive of various members' points of views, and that's something that you don't see very often in you know Western releases. So you know that was good. Yeah. Specifically with the Gamera release, I just remember talking to James, uh, James Flower. He really made it clear from the start, and he wasn't like a Gamera super fan or anything. He was just loved his job, and he was like, Arrow, it, it really tries to embody taking these these films that don't have the cachet that say Godzilla has, but they represent something. They still have like a people fondly remember these films and taking them and just giving them the best possible treatment that they can, which in fairness is also something Criterion always tries to do. The difference of course, being that it's Gamera and people don't care as much, so they're not going to withhold as much. They're just going to be like, yeah, you can have that. Yeah, you can have that. Yeah, you can do that. And, and so we were very fortunate that it wound up being as good as it was. That's a good point that you said. Like, even if you're not into the film, and this is a good thing about Arrow, you know, they know what, you know, and I do that too sometimes, you know, when I write something or, you know, doing some kind of reporting thing. Like, you know, I might myself personally not be into it, but I know someone out there is into it. Like, if I was a fan of this, what would I want to see? What would make me happy? You know, what is the thing I want to see? So, like, that's the thing Arrow really knows how to, whether they personally are into it or not, but they know how to take care of the people that are into the into that. I mean, of course, I'm a Godzilla fan before I'm a, a Gamera fan, but... That box set was like really sweet, you know, and I, I have it. I watched every single film, listened to all the commentaries. I'm not a commentary guy all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really good. And I didn't pick up the Godzilla set. Well, I didn't work on the Criterion one, so I didn't get a freebie, but like I did with the Gamera one. I, I have no desire to pick up the, the Criterion set because as much as I would want it, but just for that price. And you know what I mean? I, I mean, I have the other DV, DVDs. They're for me right at this moment, you know, they're good enough. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, it just doesn't have, it doesn't have that like extra little, like we've gone the extra mile. Like I felt like with the camera, the camera set, you know, I, I don't see that in the criterion. I don't blame criterion. No, no, it's definitely not criterion's fault or anything it's just at a certain point your hands are tied oh and i have to say that is the sadness of being a godzilla fan is this right. constant feeling like of the rights holder i say that very diplomatically the rights holder holding back you know they're always like yeah. sitting on stuff like you know when i was at toho man and i got photos and i'll never share them of you cannot imagine the wealth of photography they have from Showa and, and other things. And they let that come out. It's like that toilet you have in the back room with this faucet that you don't really use and you don't want to spend the money to fix it. But it's just dripping a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes on for years. And that's like they do these book releases in Japan and they're like 95% are photos you've seen and they put five percent new photos and the fans feel like oh my god i've got to buy all these photos i already have but just for those five percent that i don't have you know and it's like that's like the strategy and it really it's, it's very annoying <laughs> it, it well it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a disney-esque like it's going back in the vault approach you know which in some ways i mean you have you gotta hand it to them it is good business like i mean us fans are well 
guys like me, rather. I I finally had to let go of a couple, a big stack of my Godzilla photo books because I was just like, half of this is stuff I've seen before, and there maybe be one interesting shot of Gorosaurus I've never seen before or something. Right. But we've got a video up that, that the, not that the listener can see it, but we have video up. You see my shelves back there. Yes. And you don't see how it wraps around this way and comes around this way. So you get the idea of like at a certain point, something's got to give. But coming back around to you, the thing that inspired me to want to bring you onto the show is your new book, which is Behind the Kaiju Curtain, A Journey onto Japan's Biggest Film Sets. Love that title. It came out just this year, right? It just it just came out a few months ago or did it come out late uh, 2021? Last year. Oh, yeah. Okay. Five months no, ago. No, I, I just... How, how time flies. <laughs> yes. Well, just, um, I remembered picking it up and it's so hard, uh, for me to, um, make time to read stuff because I'm, I'm always working. I typically tend to, to go towards audiobooks if, or podcasts and things like that. But I remember we started talking about it and basically when we were talking about it and I remember being reminded like, oh yeah, this is Norman's book. Oh yeah, I really like the way Norman writes. And uh, and I went to go start reading it. You go through this whole journey. You talk a little bit about the Resident Evil, the Biohazard trailer. Then, you know, you, you talk about, like you said earlier, working for Fangoria, meeting with Kaneko, and going to the Gamera sets. And then the real bulk of the book, the meat and potatoes such as it is, is the story of your time on the GMK set on the Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters solid attack set for those who don't know what gmk wow, you said that <laughs> yes oh man that was the first japanese godzilla title i memorized just like the trailer i was a kid in high school when these movies were coming out and i remembered reading you were doing kaneko-san's website at the time right right you were doing yeah. like was the norman report on his website no, the, the norman report and that's a very embarrassing title but that was on the toho website <laughs> so the toho had their their website and then yeah that's in the book like tomiyama was like can you you got to do something everyone's doing something you're just like kind of <laughs> chilling out here it's like well i right and then he came up with this idea and toho named it the norman report and then i would do like these bi-weekly for the japanese because it was it was in japanese right um, that would be like what's going on on the godzilla set over these past this was like yeah uh, every two weeks and i usually would focus in like on a crew member and then mm. kind of tell a little bit like i usually like do two stories that that web page is now long defunct but i did do printouts of i think 90 percent nice. of them so i still have those but anyway yeah i did that and then i did the Kaneko's website when we websites were still a thing and i did that for a number of years i think it's still online but it's more like you know i mean it's like looking at a geo cities website at this <laughs> point it's not that bad you know but I mean, it, it, it was fun. I mean, it, it was fun. I would, I mean, really, it was the first time. I mean, I would do things like I'd be in Studio 9. I would take photos, you know, because I'd be there from, you know, like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And so I, I would sit yeah. at Nako, the still cameraman's desk, and I would do an update there. And then I would actually, like, sometimes upload a photos from the day before shooting. That was the first time in Godzilla history, you know, anyone was able... This just happened yesterday on the set. And it hasn't happened since because Toho really was like... I don't think they really knew or re really that aware. So I kind of got away with it. And they hadn't really come up with a policy on that type of stuff. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, it's kind of a, like a very a... rare moment in this. Uh, and I'm a foreigner too. And it's like, how do we control the foreigner? You know? <laughs> there are so many moments. We'll talk about it because I have my notes here. This is a gigantic cast first. Matt made notes about being a foreigner in Japan. And actually, you know what? That ties into my first note, which is about you living in Japan, moving to Japan, being a foreigner in Japan specifically, because there are so many little moments in the book. I, I was just thumbing through it before we started re- uh, recording. And one of the, another line that jumped out of me was uh we've got a foreigner loose back here and i think it was um it was because you were trying to see Chiharu-san because it was a, it was a press event wasn't it it, it, was, it was the right before... tokyo international film festival the yes the, the screening kaneko like called me as like come backstage so i went backstage right. totally lost and i i kind of find those things humorous kind of when mm-hmm. you know like because yeah racism in japan which exists but it's sure. so being an American where it's like you read about very sad stories. Like I know back in the 80s, there was a thing in Detroit, like some out of work auto guys, I think. And I'm sorry if I'm misremembering the story, but I think they killed an Asian guy because of their anger over the Japanese imports. And the guy was like Korean or something, mm-hmm. wasn't even Japanese. But I mean, that my, my point being that the U.S., right. um, they'll lynch you. And in Japan, it's like they'll give you a little nasty stare. You know what I mean? And so I always say, it's like, you know, I, I can handle the, you know, or or they won't sit next to you on the train, something like that, you know? And it's like, okay, if that's, if that's the extent of it, you know, I mean, they're, they're not like dragging me out of my house and, and beating me up or anything, you know, it's still annoying, you know, any kind of prejudice, any kind of looking at you, like we're not the same kind of thing, you know, that that's really unacceptable. But the thing about Japan would actually makes it a little acceptable is the Japanese are so locked within their own culture. It's such a dense culture. It's such a rule oriented culture that by being a foreigner, in some ways you're so, they can't even figure you out to the point that they just let you be, if that That makes any sense. That's no, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I told myself before we recorded, like Matt, don't try to match Norman story for story because he's been there longer than you've been total. Like it's just, I, I think I have been in Tokyo I mean, but you've been in Japan yeah. more than most fans. Yeah. So as a result, I do have a lot of experiences to draw upon. So there, are, like you and I will talk on Messenger and there are little stories that'll pop up in my head because I've read something that you, you wrote about or, you know, we're just talking. You do kind of get that vibe where like, you're very fortunate. You and I are both very fortunate that the people we know over there are very cool. The people can be very accepting uh, once you find your tribe, you know, once you find your people. On the other side of the spectrum, you are kind of a bit of an oddity and as a result you're kind of kept at arm's length in almost all well, scenarios well to interrupt and i want to say something positive here is there mm-hmm. that there are people here that feel strongly that japan needs a, a more of a foreign presence you know one of my friends a mutual friend kakusei fujiwara you know, who yeah. is a suit maker. One Now he's become like the big, like special makeup guy. So we worked on a film just when COVID was happening. I was a still guy. You know, he's like the go-to guy for makeup effects. I, I hate to compare, but he's kind of like Tom Savini of Japan, though his technique mm. is better. Or people call him up, 
you know, like I need a, this effect and he'll go to the set and he'll, he'll whip up from his little makeup kit or he'll build big suits for my movie, the idol. He made my opening alien. I love that alien so much. I didn't know that was his. I was going to, I even have that in my notes. Like, let's talk about that alien, but, uh... but he's like, Japan is, we need this point of view that we don't have. And he really likes when he works, he, he did the zombies for, I am a hero, the Toho film. And he liked that experience a lot because they shot that in Korea. If you've seen the film, the big supermarket stuff and all that stuff, all of that stuff was done in Korea. I mean, some stuff in Japan, but he he liked having this Korean crew, this crew that didn't think like the Japanese. And he felt it added a dimension. You know, that's the thing about, you know, I, I love living in Japan, things I don't like, but there's so many things that I like about Japan. But I feel when I'm on a movie set that, you know, it's like one of the strengths of Hollywood is the diversity, you know, that's there. And, and you think, I think of it like a net and the more diverse, the smaller the holes are. But in Japan, people have pretty much the same sensibility. So they're seeing things the same way. The good side is it makes things very Japanese. You know, you see something, oh my God, that's really super Japanese. But if you're not into that, it makes it very hard to relate if you're say not Japanese, you know? So the more... Yeah the more foreign influences that that we have here kind of makes those holes a little smaller. I mean, and some people who are into Japan don't want that because they want to keep this like kind of so-called purity going on, which I don't really agree with. I don't agree. And I get very upset when people write things like online, like Japan don't ever change because man, Japan needs to change. And, you know, the internet's affected Japan a lot, you know, but what my, my point is to go back, like our mutual friend, um, Sagaya, who unfortunately is no longer mm. with us. I mean, he was another guy that really embraced, and I don't want to say foreigners, because it sounds so um, cold. He embraced people, you know, right. and, and that's like Kakusei is the same way. I mean, like, it's not about working with foreigners. It's about working with with a variety of people, you know, so Japanese tend to have this real like us and them kind of mentality, you know, the whole, the whole word, word, um, gai, gaigokujin, you know, means foreigner, but it really means outsider, you know, it really trans yeah. to, uh, translates to outsider. When you think about the word outsider, foreigner is kind of like, doesn't really have, it just means a person not from this country. But when you right. say outsider, that guy's an outsider. It really, it's like, it it carries a different connotation. Yeah, so with that's it. kind that's of not... what the Japanese. Yeah, I mean that word itself is not really, you know. And, and I want to say yes and no because not like I said, my friends, and they are probably my friends because they're not like that. <laughs> they don't they don't feel that way so sure. much. So I, I I mean it is a, a yes and no thing. But generally speaking, you know, Japan has this kind of big barrier and this big. I don't want to say it's like hatred, but it is basically like everyone's a little afraid of the unknown, sure. you know? So it's it's more like, I mean, it's very different from, say, I, mean, I apologize to anybody from Alabama, <laughs> but just being a Northerner, like, you know, back in like 1962 or something like that. Like if I'm like a, a, a black guy driving around Alabama and I'm lost and I'm asking for directions and then who knows, they've just made, you know, in the 70s, some film about this incident that just went down and, you know, back. I've never been like, oh, I don't want to be in this neighborhood. And even in the U.S., you know, I, I'm a, the majority i'm you know uh you know white american 
But I've feared in America, you know, being a New Yorker, I've, I've feared where I've been. I never felt fear in Japan. I mean, I've told a lot of my friends this because, again, like you said, I'm very fortunate. I've been able to, to, to go there as often as I have. And it is one of those places where you always do kind of feel like there's a certain level of safety because they do price a lot of value on keeping the wheels greased, keeping their society moving and that comes with a lot of benefits and a lot of pros and a lot of cons. Uh, and I didn't mean to to suggest that like all Japanese have that mentality. Like you said, your friends don't have that mentality. They have uh, uh, both. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends. Uh, I can't remember if you know Yagi Takeshi-san. Very well, uh, yes. And Yagi-san, he's just, he's so warm and he's so... Oh, you know, he, he does a thing in Kyoto. He does a thing in Kyoto where they work with bringing film stuff for foreigners in Kyoto. Yeah, I've seen him talk about that. It sounds uh, really wonderful. And I mean, you know, like you said, Sagai son. I have to and... interview you with the saddest story you're ever going oh, to hear in your life. So oh, my, God. Here we go. my movie, The Idol, it, it and mm-hmm. I, I had met Yagi on the set of Ultraman Max. I'd met mm-hmm. him. Um, that was the first time I met him. You know, I went over to Toho Built a couple of times. Like I spent like five days on the Max set, just taking photos, hanging out, you know. Kaneko said, you want to come by? Sure. I'm going to say yes to that, you know? <laughs> and course. then uh, my my film, The Idol Play, it premiered at uh, Fantasia Film Festival and Yagi was there. He saw my film. He's like, I love your movie. My God. And he says, I estimated that cost like $250,000 to make. I'm like, you know, that costs like 10 grand. You know, I mean, I got a lot of stuff for free. You know, people sure. gave me and stuff. And he's like, really? He goes, I wish I'd met you earlier because when I did Ultraman Max... What I was trying to do was bring in new... That's why I brought Miki. I was trying to bring in all... I would have loved to have you direct an episode of Max. And I'm like, I don't know if I could have really handled it, honestly speaking, but I definitely, if the offer had been there, I would have accepted the challenge. But that's just to go... I'm not trying to brag or anything like that, but I'm just saying (laughs) that's the kind of guy that Yagi is like that kind of guy that is... They don't see these things as like diluting Japanese culture. They they see it as expanding Japan and what Japan is capable of. It's just so refreshing and it's very like it just it's a it's a warm feeling and you that's one of the reasons why i have such positive associations with japan myself because i have all these warm feelings for the people i know there who have been so immediately accepting of me and of you know any foreigners i have in tow with me as well which is always really fun so bringing it around to set visits you know that's my segue uh because you know you talked about going to the max set but we're talking about like with your book you're talking a lot about really the story of your book isn't it's not necessarily just going to the set of gmk it really is about your relationship with kaneko and in a lot of ways i had was very fortunate i was just man and i know you remember this because you were there but i just ran into kaneko-san just on the streets of shinjuku and one of the last times i was there i had just gone to the godzilla store spent way too much money i just saw him walking down the street he was heading for golden guy we kind of stopped and kind of looked at him and he was like mato-san and i'm like yeah kaneko-san and i'm like uh it was the exact same thing that happened when i ran into higuchi-san on the subway one day but with uh kaneko-san getting to spend that time with him it's one of the reasons why i really need to learn japanese I really need to do more. I know, I know. That's the problem is that it's such a dense language. But I'm sitting here with him and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, this is 
probably my favorite director. He directed my four favorite kaiju films, you know, GMK and the Gamera trilogy. I want so desperately to talk to him, and I'm trying as hard as I can, and I say this with nothing but love, nothing but affection. He's a weird dude, (laughs) and that's hard to, it's hard to bridge that a little bit. So I'm reading your book, and I can't help but sit here and think like, you guys are so damn cute <laughs> and you're so you, really? <laughs> you have this energy the way you convey it and i just want to know about like i just w- want you to talk a little bit about kaneko about meeting him and hanging out with him and what it's like you know i know it's hard to condense all that down to a podcast segment right but... you know i met him on the fangoria interview i was doing i mean this is like in 97 you know it's how like you become friends with any anyone where it's not like oh I'm, i want to be friends with this person it just you suddenly find yourself hanging out with that person a lot right. you know like oh let's go see a movie let's go do this or you know when i lived in shimokitazawa which is kind of close to toho and kaneko helped me move to tokyo actually he had this place in shimokita he didn't really use it. It was like a, a shared apartment with a couple other directors that lived outside of Tokyo. And then it would be like, oh, I'm going to come in. And then they weren't really using it. And then Kaneko's like, why don't you just take it over? I mean, he just liked to come over and we'd go out for coffee. How we became friends was we both love film. You know, we both right. love film. We both love the power of film. So we would have these conversations where we would just jump from film to film and pick out moments that seem like this is going to sound really ridiculous we were talking once about indiana jones 2 and the opening sequence where it just goes on and on and on and on all this crazy stuff and then they're on the raft and they're sliding down the thing then you hit the raft and i said to him yeah you, they hit the raft everything's calm and then these legs come into the the shot you know and you think what now and then the camera spins around and you've got this like very you know gandhi looking like Indian guy, and it completely betrayed what you were expecting. And Kaneko was like, like he got so, yes. You know, it was like, that's the power of film where it makes you feel something, but, and then they kind of go against your feeling, which creates a whole nother feeling you got. And I remember after we just kind of got quiet. He's like, let's talk about the legs again. You know, cause it was like, so it was like, he just loved that kind of, those kind of discussions. And I'm, I'm very much, yeah, I, I love film and I love what film does, you know, this illusion that it creates, you know? So like with me and Kaneka, we would always talk about, we didn't all necessarily like the same films. Like I'm, I'm into crappy zombie movies. <laughs> he does not like gore in any way. We don't share that, but we do share a love just of cinema in general. Um, he's very lucky because he's part of the union here, so he can go see films for free anytime nice. he wants. And it's like, but anyway, I mean, that was really like it. We would just get together and we'd talk about film, you know, for hours and hours, you know. And we another good thing is we both have like the same beer level, so we're both like a two <laughs> beer guys. We'd go get we'd get like two beers. It wasn't like you ever have if you have any friends. It's like oh my god, they're like. I've only owned my first beer and they're on like on their fifth. So we had this like really good beer matching level. And I think for him too, that I offered him something that, you know, he didn't have, which was my foreigner point of view. And yeah, is he a weird guy? I guess he's a, he's a particular guy. I mean, he makes some people uncomfortable and by that, because he's not, he's a, he's a very deep thinker. Maybe I'm like you, Matt. I just say whatever pops into my head for better or for worse, you know, and he's a guy that he very much thinks about what he's going to say before he says it. 
I did stills on his movie Danger Dolls. And one of the cutest moments on that set were like shooting inside this hotel and the AD Murakami is like, okay. And Murakami's in my book too. He's like Kaneko's like a long time. He's the bad AD, the one that will yell at you. So he's got good uh, ADs yeah. and bad ADs. He's the bad. And, and I, I mean, I like the guy, but working with him, sometimes he's yelled at me and I've been pissed off. Runs being a tight yelled ship. At, you know? Yeah. He runs a very tight ship, but he was like, okay, we're ready to go. Okay. Everyone stop dawdling. We're going to get the shot. Okay. Everyone get set. And then he goes, Kaneko goes, excuse me, but the director is not ready. And I I can't really convey it, but the way Kaneko said it was like the cutest thing because he really needs to get it settled in himself before he will utter it, you know, even in personal life. So I've had other people say, "I, I can't get this guy because he's like so quiet. And then he just bursts out with something. And if you ever watch him talk on stage, it's the same way. And I think I wrote that in my book, like he builds up this thing and then he shoots it out. And it's a very interesting way of delivering. I don't know anyone who talks in quite the way. It's very intelligent, very bright guy, very smart guy. I mean, he's very liberal guy, which kind of people misinterpreted GMK as being very nationalistic when it couldn't have been further from it's the so point. funny to hear because i i never thought of it that way this is opening up a rabbit hole that we do not have to go down or we could if we have five hours using it as a counterpoint to shin godzilla and i think that you really do have to have a pretty in-depth knowledge of japanese culture to have that conversation yeah i never would have thought of of anyone would have thought of gmk as a nationalistic film yeah well i mean it was seen by some people that way and i, I think it's been cleared up since then. But anyway, I mean, man, my life would not be what it is, for better or for worse, what it is today if it wasn't for (laughs) his kindness, for his trusting me, thinking that I had something to offer. Yeah, that was, I mean, I continued with the uh, Millennium series even after, you know, Kaneko's involvement ended. We And Tezuka, this kind of annoyed me, but like Mechagodzilla was the one after GMK, right? So the, yeah. like I'm on the Mechagodzilla set, like it's like the first day or second day and I'm over at Studio 9 and Tezuka comes by to say something because I really hung out. I don't have the same relationship with Tezuka that I do with Kaneko. So with mm-hmm, Kaneko, sure. I could join the locations for the um, uh, live action stuff. But with Tezuka's stuff, I didn't really know him well enough that I was going to get on the bus and ride with everybody. So I'd only be for when they would do live action shooting at Toho, then I would join the live action set. But Tezuka comes up to me. So he's visiting Studio 9 and I knew him well enough, you know. So, yeah. uh, but he comes up, he goes, oh, Norman, I see you're joining us this time around. What are you going to do now that you don't have Kaneko to protect you? And I'm like, what? What is that what a even? thing to say. You know, what? A, I was like, well, that's kind of uncalled for. But and then I was like, oh, do I need Kaneko to protect me? I don't know. Oh, you know, no. it made me feel really self-conscious. Should I even be here? You know, I mean, I'm doing more Fangoria stuff. But I mean, the truth of the thing was, I don't have to be on set every single day to do, a, a, you know, a four page article for a magazine. Uh, of course. You know, but <laughs> I was there because I wanted to be there. You know, my book ends with GMK and I didn't get into, you know, I was there very limited on Final Wars um, when Toho was like kind of giving me a hard time and it was fine. I mean, I was kind of burnt out by that time anyway, you know, from these. Yeah. But I was really on the set of the next one 
Mechagodzilla a lot, less so on Tokyo SOS. And then like Final Wars, maybe like a week or so, you know, here and there. You know, it was fine. And, you know, I just go by and how you guys doing? But I, I was doing other things, you know, at, at that point, too. So to be honest, I was a little annoyed. And then I saw the movie and I was like, thank God I didn't waste my summer on that movie. I wasn't a big fan. Aww. wasn't a fan, you know. But going back to should I be on the sets or not, you know, it, it was more like, and maybe this is part of my personality. So, no, I wanted to be there like anyone would want to be there, you know. And, and I managed to ingratiate myself with the staff. I mean, they seemed to like me. You know, so even like when Tezuka came out with that comment, my friend, uh, Nako, the still cameraman on GMK, he retired with GMK, the the still photographer, and he was the one that gave me a space in Studio 9. So, you know, when I come into Studio um, 9 on the next one, I'm still doing the Norman report, but I still need to have space in Studio 9 as big it is. And then Mike, you know, the art director, Mike was like the champion on that. And he was like, Norman, Nako's not here anymore. We got a space for you here. And it was really cool. I have a, a photo of it. They put a thing on this space on the desk. This is reserved for Norman England. So they really like when you talk about people protecting you, you know, so it was really for the next two productions. It was uh, Mike and his staff, you know, Taguchi was part of his staff, you know, who's now a big Ultraman director and stuff. And I didn't really necessarily need protection. I needed I don't want to say protection. It's more like who's going to keep an eye on this guy. So to speak, yeah. you know, who's going to take responsibility, you know, for this guy? <laughs> and even like the Senden guys, the PR guys, the PR oh. guys are like, oh, okay, now Norman's actually not under our control because the PR guys, you know, they would be my bosses when I could go, you know, when I what I could see. But when Mike kind of took me on as like not a staff member, but a guy that was like under his control, and then that gave right. me the the ability to go to the set. You come and go freely. I have to say this. What I did is not going to happen again. You know? Right. No, no. I, I think I, Toho I, I also mean, was like, okay, we're not going to let another Norman into the into the mix. So. <laughs> well, it, well, it's just so funny because, I mean, I just remembered thinking, you know, it, it ties back to this conversation about being a foreigner, being a gaijin in Japan. And you occupy in kind of an odd space uh, in the day-to-day lives. I mean, your personal relationships, you can have very warm, very, very close personal relationships. But in the day-to-day lives, as a foreigner, it, it does make us a little bit of an anomaly. And so as a result, you're going to occupy a space that is your own, kind of whether you intend to or not. At least that's been my observation. Tying it back to, again, talking to Kaneko, being friends with Kaneko, speaking personally, I pride myself on being able to talk to just about anyone. I have a lot of friends and I try to be friendly with people, especially people that I find to be unique individuals. I try to surround myself with weirdos, with weird guys, weird gals like me. And in that moment, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like, I want to know what's going on in that head. And I can't because I don't speak the language. <laughs> well, let me tell you, even if you did, you'd still be like, what's going on in this guy's head? Because like I said, he's he's very, he's, right. he's kind of a guarded person. Like in Japan, your reputation is everything. I mean, it's like that anywhere, but especially in Japan, it's like how people perceive you. And like I had mm-hmm. in our little pre-talk before we started this, we were talking about, yeah, for Japanese, it's really how society sees you 
that is very right. um, instrumental in how successful you are. And going back to what you said at Golden Guy that night, because he likes my partner, Miyako. She, before COVID, would work one night a week at a place called Cambiare. And she would do that, not really for the money, but it was a good spot where, because she's a manga artist and, and fans could come and talk to her. And, and she would tell people, oh, I'm going to be a Cambiare this night and come. And then they could talk business. That's kind of the beauty of Golden Guy. It's a very unique mm-hmm atmosphere you've been there you know it's like 140 bars within like three feet of each other you know so and Kaneko always he always comes when she works because he really likes her and he always comes out so yeah it's easy to meet meet up and stuff there so a lot of times like he would go to the convenience store and buy his dinner and then eat it at the bar (laughs) like right when it opened up and and then if Miyako's late he would send her text mail saying you know where are you i'm waiting okay <laughs> what's with this guy but yeah that i walked in and it's like oh matt's here you know and then yeah we had that kind of fun night and i told you that too because takahashi who did the singular point yeah he was also yeah. there that night and you didn't even know it because he hadn't done singular point i but i knew it see and he was another guy that i met i actually met him at Cambiare. he started just hanging out before singular point you know but it would be really fun it's like oh we got kaneko here we got takahashi here and we never talk about kaiju you know that's the thing i mean that (laughs) yeah i mean that was the thing like i'm sitting here and 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 that that i felt it's this is one of those moments where you know again in our little pre-talk we were talking about how these little kind of head slapper moments where you're like don't talk about that the only thing i think of is how badly i wanted to talk with him about the themes present in his in his movies and at the time the only ones of his movies i had seen were his four kaiju movies i wanted to so badly to talk about the theme in those films especially gmk and some of the anti-war stuff and i was struggling to convey this to him and after a couple of minutes i'm just i just kind of gave up and that's something that i want to impress on my fellow kaiju fans is that these people are they're people they have interests outside of this stuff it's not end all be all for them the other night put in crossfire for the first time you know i've been sitting on this movie for a long time for those who don't know crossfire or pyrokinesis was kaneko's it was like his test film for toho between the gamera trilogy and gmk is that accurate yeah i uh, yeah i'm watching this and i'm like this is so good this is it's keeping me on my toes i have no idea where it's gonna go I've never read Firestarter, so I didn't really, I, I didn't really have any context for like, you know, I, I mean, that, that trope of like, child has supernatural powers, has to keep it hidden. That's a trope in a lot of media, but he took it in all these wild directions. And I'm sitting here thinking like, man, these movies are, represent so many different facets. They represent different facets of the people who make them, of any art, any art represents a part of the person who made it. But it's not all of that person is not just coming out in this one thing. I I have another set of films that I've been sitting on, the Buddhist trilogy by Akio Jisoji. And for those who don't know, Jisoji was a classic Ultraman director. He directed a lot of Ultraman, but he made these weird movies and they have a few Ultraman actors in them. 
And I have the Blu-ray set from Arrow. I haven't cracked into I them yet. I haven't seen them, so <laughs> I'm They're <guilty>. supposed <laughs> to be weird and disturbing and messed up. Anyway, I guess Miss, my, my broader point is that while there is always going to be a part of me that's like, I'm a fan, I'm geeking out a little bit here. What interests me more is the person. I am a fan of people. I want to know more about people. So that's why, you know, through reading your book, I was able to kind of get a little bit of that vibe, a little bit of that hit. Like I I say that in in the introduction is, you know, like originally I thought to write one of these, you know, factual, this is how a Godzilla film is made. And even if I was going to do that today, I would still have to do a lot of research and things like that. And I was like, you know, Sure, there's value in that, but maybe I'm like you in that way is like, you know, I really came to know a lot of these people. And I thought that 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 was a story that needed to be told more than, you know, another this is, you know, this is here's how the pre-production meeting went. And here are some early sketches and here's the concept of these things. They're all fine and dandy, you know, and I have some of that in my book. I tried to make my book in a way that people not interested in Godzilla and who are interested in, say, filmmaker stories. And when I'd write for Fangoria, I would always think about my mom who doesn't like this stuff. And, but she's interested in reading about, like maybe going back to the Arrow thing, we're not into the film, but we're, we know what they want. You know, we know what these fans want. So I think about my mom. How can I make her relate to the story? And I could make her relate to the story. Here are people with a challenge set before them. And how do they come to meet this challenge? If you understand what I mean, you know, and if and if I can keep it relatable in that way. And that's what I felt with this is like, you know, sometimes I think Westerners think of Japanese as all having like the same personality. And I think that comes from watching too much anime, you know, like uh-huh. very, very withdrawn, but then something's got to give and they suddenly scream yelling at everybody around them, you know, things like, you know, all these like cliches and stuff. And I kind of wanted to make this a, a bit of a bid to show that they are just as diverse as we are. You know, Americans tend to think of themselves as being very free and very open, but we are very much victims or prisoners of our own society. We have our own set of rules. We are not as free as, you know, we like to imagine that we are. And the same accord, the Japanese are the same way. I mean, they've got their, you know, they're in this prison of their own culture. That might be kind of a harsh word, but within that, within all of our social prisons, we all have our ways of showing who we are, you know, and the type of person that we are. And I thought, that here was a, a really good opportunity to show in the Japanese film industry the kind of diverse people and the creative people and just how they view life and how they communicate with each other. I thought that, that would this would be, you know, one of my favorite people in this was the film editor, Tomita, who comes in on the pre-production. He was hysterical. This guy was hysterical. This guy was like, the things that would come out of this guy's mouth were like just cracking me up you know, through the whole, like the pre-production, you know, it was really fun. And, and Chiharu was another one that doesn't, she's in her real life. She's nothing like her character of Yuri. You know, she's like really so much 
fun and so like wild and I having, you know, and, that, and that's what I felt was like, you know, sure. I'm sure there's some fans who don't give a crap about that stuff. You know, they just want to read like, how hard was it to wear the Godzilla suit, which I do have inside my book. Yeah. I wanted to bring these people, you know, to life. One thing that I have been criticized in ve by a very small minority, I probably, you know, being very egocentric or the egotistical in the book, but it's a friggin' journal. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's like it's a journal. Like, here's and I what thought, I had for breakfast. You know, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> I thought that that was the way that I decided on that and I went for it that way, you know, and I did what I, as much as my writing ability would allow to make it accessible to people who are not me. You know, it's like, I, you know, I always think like, I just took a trip to Europe and here's like eight hours of slides that I took. I mean, no one wants <laughs> to sit through that, you know? So I, I really tried to keep it, you know, even though it is my experience, but keep it focused on the subjects. I have a kind of rule. If I can't say anything about the person, don't say anything at all. Don't just be like, I met this dude, you know? So everybody, if, right. if you notice everyone, like the Kaidas, you know, uh, Yuji and Aya. I mean, they're in there. I think I convey their personality, you know, the the dynamic in that relationship. Both of them are, you know, I met them on the Gamera 3 sets, you know, and, and Yuji is one of the, um, no offense, I mean, he's probably now that Odai is no longer with us. He's like the top kaiju artist, you know. You know what I mean. So, no, I, mean, I, know I, what I you have mean. total I mean, respect I... for him. And But I, I, all throughout my book, I mean, all of them, Higuchi's in my book. I try to convey who they are as people, you know, and I, I felt that that's what I could bring. Because I actually, I feel like anyone, if you really want to, can write a making of book without actually having been on there. You just got to translate a bunch of stuff. You know what I mean? There's lots of books with that information out there, but you're not going to find any books with this kind of information because you have to have actually have that experience. I mean, I've got yeah. books written by the staff you know, and they talk about how they made, you know, they photograph equipment and this is how I wired it up. And this is how I did this it would be great if all that stuff was, is in English. I don't have the strength to have to translate stuff like that, because like maybe with you, I mean, I, I've got to have a certain kind of humanity behind the story to really hold my own, you know, attention. And that was always when I did Fangoria stories, when I'd go to sets, I mean, it was always like, who am I going to meet today? You know, what, what kind of bizarro conversation are we going to have and what am I going to see? Crossfire was another set that was very important to me. And actually I had a whole chapter section on Crossfire in my first draft of the book, but I removed it for, for pacing reasons, you know? So that's mm -hmm. kind of like, when you look at the story, each set I go to, I get a little deeper into it until it's like GMK. It's like flat out, you know, from through yeah. the whole thing. And that's kind of, and that's why I didn't continue it to uh, Mechagodzilla, Tokyo SOS, and Final Wars, because I felt as interesting as many I've, of wealth of stories from those sets, but I just thought it was like repetitious. So for the sake of storytelling, that I, yeah. I think that this got, I mean, you, you know, you're an artist, you're a storyteller, you can't, I don't want to compare myself to Kubrick, but when you look at like, Kubrick will write like, like he was going to do the Napoleon film. That was like his thing he wanted to do. The guy like mapped out Napoleon, what he did every single day of his life, his adult life, you know, and he's got like notes that are like thousands of pages long, doesn't translate to the film, but it translates in a kind of feeling, a mood, you know, and that's why Kubrick right. films are so, so I, in my own way, I tried to do the same <laughs> thing. I had to remove, you know, when the book, I had to hand it in and it's kind of, 
fortuitous that this happened. I was trying to get to Kyoto, rent a home in Kyoto for a couple of weeks just to get away from it all. And we had this COVID boom and I pushed back the trip by two weeks. And then my publisher was like, okay, well, you want to go through the book again? And I'm like, yeah, thank God I did. Cause I think I really, you know how it is. It's like, oh yeah, for me, like writing, it's like that last 5% is where the beauty in the writing comes out. Not to say my writing is like beautiful or anything like that, but it's like, <laughs> thank God I had those. I went in, I'm like, you know, this story isn't cutting it. I'm going to lose the reader here. As much as I think personally, this is interesting. You know, I got to go in there and, and find what's the most important thing for the reader. Where am I going to lose the reader's attention? You know, you know what that's like. I mean, and oh, yeah. I'm really glad that I was able to um, go into that go through the whole thing. I wish I could do it one more time even. But you know how it is, as they always say, it's like writing, is, you never finish, you just abandon. Oh, yeah. I, I, that's, I use that phrase all the time when talking about deadlines and stuff. Like you talking about that just gave me these trauma spiral flashbacks of when I was working, it was late last year, uh, it was around about October, and I was working on two comics simultaneously. And it was killing me. Now, on the one hand, I had the Miss, Miss Medusa's Monstrous Menagerie, which is this original book right, that I worked I on with yes. my, for those who don't know, with the original book that I worked on with my writer, uh, uh, Paul Hanley. And Paul had already, like, the script was done, the story was done. My job was just to get the damn art done. But at the same time, I really wasn't able to dig my teeth in like I wanted to. And then I had to jump over to doing a book for my publisher in Japan for Phase 6, which was uh, Dinosaur War Eisenborg based on an old Tsuburaya TV series. It really was one of those things where even though I was the writer, I had to block all the pages out because I was collaborating with my friend Kanatani-san so we could get that anime and tokusatsu hybrid style. But the problem is, is that I had given myself so little time, the whole thing was just fire and forget. Like, I just had to kick it out the door and be done with it because we were already behind schedule. And it was killing me because Red Man, for example, was an example of something where I sat and I chewed on that story to try to uh, make sure that it had a flow that I liked and felt. Yeah, but even when you do, you still find like, oh, you know, I wish I had more time. I wish I could have gone back, you know, so certain jobs. I mean, I always do like even subtitling, you know, I might not like the film, like I said, maybe in our pre-talk I, or no, the Arrow thing. I know someone out there is going to love this film and I'm, I have to do a good job for them. But sometimes you just got to be like, you got to say enough is enough on things, yeah. you know, and, you know, but this this book, I mean, I'm really glad I had those extra two weeks because I, I, I really cleaned up a lot. I think I removed like about 10 pages uh, here and there. You know, sure, sure, here sure. and there type of stuff. And, you know, I already said this kind of let me get this out. And then, I mean, it's just like any writer knows you, you find repetition in the wording. OK, you know, I just mm-hmm. use that word. And even the other day, that's why I hate to look at like I, I pop something open. It's like, oh, God, I wrote something like so and so stepped out of this. And then like five paragraphs later, I use stepped out again. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. Like, you know, God, can I just. <laughs> Can, can I rewrite this, you know? So, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many of those things, those, those repetition words. That's something that's always a, that's a big monkey on my back whenever I'm, I mean, even yeah, for but, me, it but comes it's down like, to but it, it, most people don't notice it except for you. You know, that's like when, yeah. Okay. My film, the idol, right. When, so the idol right. played at Fantasia and I was really like, we're doing tests, 
you know, before I want everything perfect, you know, it starts screening, right? The friggin' audio is only coming out of one side. Oh. You know, I go running up to the sound booth and I'm like, what or the projection booth? I'm like, what is going on? The guy was this guy was like kind of like, huh? And I was like, the audio, and then the guy fiddles it, and then it comes out on the other side. And I'm like, God damn it, everyone's gonna hate the film because it only came out on the right side. So then like a couple days later, I'm seeing someone else's film. It's like the same thing happened. I didn't care. I was still enjoying the film, you know, and I'm like, this is how they're seeing your film, except you're seeing it from a different point of, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's kind of like that, but. I mean, there's a great video on uh, on YouTube by a YouTuber named H Bomber Guy. You might actually really like this. It's a video essay about the power of VHS and how people would fall in love with films even though they weren't the super high-definition Blu-ray 4K HD transfers. And it speaks to, you know, tying it back to what we're talking about, the power of film, the power of art. If the heart and soul is there, and if the person is going along with the film, then the presentation isn't going to make or break it. Now, it can can have an effect, you know. I sometimes hesitate to show people in the States GMK, because uh, even though it's my favorite Godzilla movie, the American releases of GMK have really not great subtitles, especially there's a couple of moments where it's just yeah, completely I'm very wrong. familiar with give me the yeah, you, job. God you did talk it. about that. You <laughs> talked about that in the book. Uh, I, I want to say in, in speaking in film terms, it's not like this in comic books, but you know, the interesting thing about film is people will be more forgiving about picture quality, but sound is the thing that can really make or break how a film is perceived, which you would not think that it would be that way. But if the audio is really bad, like people are distant, you know, people yeah. sound really weak if, if the audio is really weak. So that's always like when I've done films, I've always made sure to get the sound as good as possible. And I'm always like, I have a, a I always, not like I've made a lot of films, but I always make sure to have a legitimate sound man, you know, professional guy, you sure. know, that'll be on there. So I don't have to, to get those instances of like this guy sounds like he's in another room type of thing and i can handle a little bad you know dark footage or whatever but if the audio is gone then the whole film feels like um it doesn't connect with you but no that's interesting about you know vhs and yeah letting the audience's (laughs) imagination fill in the the details on those types of things it is exactly something he talks about. He shows a black screen at one point, but it's through like a VHS style filter. And he said, doesn't this look like there maybe is something happening? Like this is an actual scene. Don't you feel like there's something lurking in this darkness? And it's like one of the things that lent to the scariness of Alien, for example. That was how he originally saw it. It is fascinating. It is funny you talk about audio because I've always struggled with the audio in my podcast because inevitably something's going to go wrong. Like I did a test and I thought everything was going to go right. I have a little every now and then been fiddling with my knobs over here because my readout is weird. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. But there are some a- episodes of Gigantic Cast that I am just like, oh god, the yeah, audio no, is I, so I, I listen bad. to some podcasts, and I really want to listen to them. But it was like maybe they used like their iPhone headset with a microphone on that. I'm not like my mic is that good, but it sometimes is like, oh, this I just can't listen to this. You know, as interesting as 
as it is. I hope this one comes out okay. You know? so, <laughs> I I mean, on my end, you sound fine, you sound and fine. hopefully on your end, I sound fine. So that's uh, hopefully that will translate. I'm sh- I'm sure it'll be but, fine. But yeah, if you have, we should maybe go into more questions because we're no, like, no, no. Like like yeah, I I mean, the thing is, it's so funny because you're hitting a lot of my points. Like I'm just like, well, I don't need to ask that, ask that question. I don't need to ask that question. The one thing I did want to talk about, because we're talking about knowing a person, and I think one of the, well, there there are two characters that really jumped out at me, but the first one I know I want to talk about, and if we have time, we'll get to the second one, is Ko Otani. It it felt like every time Otani-san shows up in the book, I mean, you have a background in music. And so the two of you were able to bond over that. I always loved Otani's music, specifically from the kaiju films that he's worked on. I didn't know until I started researching for the Gamera commentary that he was in a lot of ways a soundtrack of my childhood because he did a lot of anime and video games as well, like Shadow of the Colossus and Gundam Wing and Outlaw Star, which were anime that were being brought over to America on Toonami when I was a kid. You know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Otani and just the sort of relationship you maybe have with him. If there's anything that stuck out in your mind, you know, kind of like when I asked you about Kaneko, it's a nice big vague question I've just dropped in your lap. You're welcome. Well, you know, like I said, and I mean, I met Otani in, in like a very weird way. I have it written in my book. I think it was like my birthday. Yeah, it's like a yeah. coffee shop. I think birthday, I wrote that like I, for what it's worth. I turned forty-two that day. It's a big Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy fan. I'm sitting there at Starbucks in Shimokitazawa, and I'm like, you know, I, I really need to meet Otani. And I look out the window, and the guy is just sitting there outside. They had like two two seats out outdoors, and I went and I just introduced myself, and we got talking. Very friendly guy, very sweet guy, um, very positive guy. I think I wrote that. It's like. He's got the kind of personality that you find with a lot of musicians, you know, the very in touch with life and very much. I think a lot of musicians tend to be more positive than writers, actually. I'm no way on Otani's level. Yeah, I mean, he lived very close to me, you know, and and both him and his wife at the time, Rosie, were very sweet to me, very supportive, very, you know, helping. And I, I detail it in the book, you know, being there for the recording session of the GMK soundtrack, which was really cool was really fun and then even after that like uh, Oltani did the music for my film The Idol and he he did a wonderful score which he did for free for me oh man you know Uh, there's the thing that uh, yes and I remember like my friend Saruta who's a director who did like Ring Zero he's a big horror director in Japan and he's like you got Oltani to do your soundtrack for free (laughs) like what but I, I remember like I'm over at his house and you know we're going through The Idol I'm talking about how I want to emphasize the emotional points that I don't think the actors or maybe from my own, you know, I'm a first time director. I didn't really capture it the way, like, how can I boost up this feeling, this thing? I'm thinking to myself, so incredibly happy. So how the hell am I like sitting with this incredible musician and he's responding to what I'm trying to do and he's helping me out and he's, you know, he's really getting it. And I'm like, this is just fun. You know, when you're like there working with people that you better than you, you know, and that they're, <laughs> they're helping you out. And, and it's really like, it was so great. And I detail in my book too, about when we went to the onsen together, when I wanted to interview yes. him, like, this is insane. I want to interview this guy for my Fangoria thing, which I didn't even have space for in the ending. He's like, yeah, let me take you out and I'll pay for everything, you know, I mean, only in Japan, you know, we had a great time. And and then he did my soundtrack for 
uh, bringing Godzilla down to size. And I, I have said the story before, but it was like, I, you know, we had a little meeting about it and I, I paid him a little bit. I think I paid him like 400 bucks to do it, you know, which was like nothing really. Like a pittance. Yeah. yeah. He's like, you don't have to pay me anything. I'm like, no, I gotta give you something I have to. this time. And I said, I really want to get the soundtrack to be this cross between Ifuku Bay and Otani. And he said, you know, anyone else but you asked me this and I would refuse. But oh. especially if you listen on the film, when the title sequence comes up, it's like this perfect blend of Ifuku Bay and uh, Otani. I'm like, I, that's like my favorite piece when like the credit comes up. It's like my credit comes up and it's, it's got this great, like, you know, it's like in um, Amadeus, like now play in the style of, you know, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach and Mozart's playing like all these different, you know, things. That's exactly what like, boy, it, it sounds like someone, not even Otani or Ifuku Bay wrote it, but a guy trying to do both of them push together. The guy did such a great, wonderful job on that. My last film I did like seven years ago called New Neighbor, and I asked him to score that. And he did it for free. And he's like, yeah, I had a great time. He he brought in his friends. He got like live musicians, you know? Oh so God. it's not like here, I've got this. This is another, you know, like $8,000 wonder, you know? And he he brought in for a couple of days, like his musician pals. Yeah, we had a great time. We we're just writing music. And I got live instruments this is like, an, you know, like the '80s version where you get a guy like tinkling on a synthesizer because they have no, oh, no, no do, do, do. So I'm like, I got so much more, and the guy's always been giving. Even now, I feel like guilty. Like, and and I I moved out of Shimo, so I haven't seen him for a number of years. But I I've been thinking like I I want to contact him, you know, give them a copy of my book. I had mentioned earlier in our little pre-talk that you know it looks like the the Japanese version of my book is a go. So I'm going to need to contact a lot of people, you know, that are in the yeah. book to make sure things are like, is it okay that I write this in Japanese, you know, and, and Kaneko, and just to jump to that too, Kaneko was yeah. over, but this is after the book was out and, and he came over for dinner one night and I went through a couple little instances that I thought he might not be thrilled about, but he's like, ah, it's fine. Cause I talk about his family. I talk about his oh, kids yeah. and both his yeah, that, kids now are Suzuki now is like a really accomplished playwright. He he does a lot oh. of um, stage plays and cinema. He also does some acting now. And Yurina, who has like very cute story about Chiharu's character is Yuri is named after his daughter Yurina, just taking oh, off the na. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And she was very embarrassed by that, which I detail in my book, but she's mm -hmm. now a filmmaker. And I, I went over to Kaneko's house. I don't know, you know, how time flies when you're older. So maybe about like eight or nine months ago, I went over his house and they had a screening, a TV screening of her thing. And then a Zoom meeting with her and the writer of it afterward. So I went, oh, I really like the film a lot. I mean, it's like, oh, maybe I should volunteer subtitling this. Oh, no, I don't. Because that'll be like, it'll take me like three weeks. And I don't have the time to do that. Yeah, so she's turning into a filmmaker as well. And and I actually, I was in the bookstore a couple of months ago and I saw some magazine that said new filmmakers and I flipped through. It's like, oh, there's Yurina. It's just so funny because, you know, like that moment is very heartwarming when you take Suzuki, you, you took him to, uh, you know, see Mothra and, uh, and uh, taking him around the set a little bit. And that moment, again, it's one of those humanizing moments where it's just like, man, this kid's eyeballs are probably exploding because he's like, I'm that's Mothra. That's Godzilla. And I think it's that childlike enthusiasm 
not just for kaiju stuff, but for anything that I think becomes infectious, people can really tell, you know, they pick up on that. Because, you know, that's how I interpreted a lot of your book was, you know, like you're saying, you're you're with Otani in the mountains or you're with, you know, Kaneko's kids. And I and it makes me think of, you know, these moments that I've had where I've gotten to, you know, go to Marase's, uh, Keizo Marase's studio that Sagai-san was uh, so kind to kind of arrange for me to go with him. And uh, I think it was him and myself and Fujiwara-san, Kakusei-san, and I think Ryuki Kitaoka-san was there too. If we were walking, we were just kind of walking around his grounds. We were going from point A to point B. Marase-san was in front of us. He's a little teeny tiny old man. Man. And again, I say this with 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 kindness and love. He's just kind of waddling along, <laughs> and uh, Sagai-san comes up to me, and he kind of kind of pats me on the shoulder and is like, points at Rasasan and says, "Legend, legend!" <laughs> like he just, and I'm like, "Yeah, I know, bro. I'm freaking out too." <laughs> and just, and and it's just one of those moments because sometimes people. I remember I saw a uh, comment in a forum, which don't go on forums, don't read comments, but this this is a general Matt's podcast advice corner. But I remembered a, a comment where someone said that they were like, I don't know. I mean, I like Matt's work okay, but he sure does brag a lot about, you know, all the people he gets to meet and stuff. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, I'm just excited, guys. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm stepping in because for one, I don't like when people go, oh, I'm so jealous my purpose is not to do something to make people jealous. You know, my purpose no. is to one, enjoy my life, enjoy the things that I like in life, you know, a lot. And I want to know these things. And I took it upon myself to get myself involved for better or for worse a phrase. I love to say, because <laughs> I mean, on, on the one hand, I can't watch the millennium series because I can't watch it like a normal person. I can watch the Heisei films like completely like whatever, you know, but I actually wound up hurting in a way that I removed the mystery of the Millennium Series oh, yeah. from these things. But and the other thing, it isn't isn't like, you know, like a field day I'm having on, on the sets. I mean, it was fun. It's interesting. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of pressure you're under to not be a jerk on the sets, you know, get along with people, not say, not put your foot in your mouth, you know, not do some cultural foopaw that you've got no like, you know, and there's a lot of things, you know, and I've got. The PR guy's giving me a hard time. I've got like different things going on. I mean, it isn't just like I'm on the set and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dancing in my skivvies on the, the, the stage, you know, they're going to, you know, I mean, it was very nerve wracking at times, you know, and trying to keep up with things. And, and that's another thing in Japan. They have this expression like um, kuki yomi na, yomi nai. And that means like people who can't, they don't, you don't get it. You can't read the atmosphere. So it's always like Japanese can smile at you. And from an American point of view, you're like, oh, they love me. And it really, they hate you. And the signals are there. But if you don't know, so that's why one of the reasons Japanese have a lot of hikikomori people, you know, people who are shut-ins. Oh, shut-ins, yeah. Because in those ways, America is more free because we're more like, I don't give a shit kind of people. But Japanese are very much, they give a shit what other people think, you know, and it makes people, the pressure for you to interpret what the people not their words their attitude towards you it's really annoying you know it really <laughs> so that's what i mean like when people are like you know i'm jealous of this or you lucky guy like yeah okay but i mean it came with a kind of a price you know so to speak sure. and you know like 
hell, you know, if that's what you really want yourself, go ahead and do it yourself. I mean, it's not like, you know, they let people fly in, not right now, you know, yeah. <laughs> with COVID and stuff, but I mean, you're, you know, it wasn't like that you can't do it. And it was almost like, here's the thing that we were told was impossible to do, but I went and, and did it, you know, I went and, and I involved myself with, with the Godzilla set and, you know, and I want, you know, other people to see whatever they're into, that as long as you really want to do it, you know, you can do it. Like you say, when you talk about these people, like in your instance too, I mean, I don't, it's not like this, check out how awesome I am. Watch (laughs) me shake my jewelry at you. I I get that. I don't like when I get that because I feel you're not understanding, you know, what I'm, I'm I'm trying to share my experience with you. If I wanted to be a braggart, believe me, I could frame it in a lot you know, more of an asshole-ish, is that a word, asshole-ish way, if I wanted to be like that. And I and I don't want to be, I could be more aloof. You know, I could be more like, who are you again? Do you know who I am? That's, I love, I've never, I, do you know who I am? I mean, don't let people say that. I mean, I know, you know, that you really like this stuff and you're really uh, grateful, you know, for the opportunities that you've had to, you know, I don't know Muda say, I, I mean, I've seen him. I'm not scared of him, but I'm not going to go up and say, hi, my name is Norman. Do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I introduce myself to somebody, especially in Japan, I, I never want to presume anything. My goal also is like, in a way, I'm a reporter and my job is to report. So I'm reporting, God damn it. <laughs> you know, like, and, and don't, and if, if you've got some sort of, personal issue or you interpret it this way that's really your problem and not my problem you know i mean i'm just trying to pay the rent here you know i mean it isn't like i'm making like a fortune on any of this type of stuff and that's fine with me i just i went to the inaue exhibition you know that that opened up miike's there and a lot of different people are there and i'm like and my film is playing there from bringing godzilla down to size we Mm -hmm. it's it's been really toho has claimed ownership of the film for the longest time it's been very frustrating been frustrating for Mike. It's been frustrating for Inoue's family. This is the only footage of this guy working when we do the volcano thing from Latitude yeah. Zero. It's the only footage that exists of it, even though he's retired. Nothing exists from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. With a Criterion fiasco, I reclaimed ownership of the film and I was able to pr- provide them with a um, uh, HD version of it that they edited down and they have the volcano and they have part of the interview section there. It's it's a big feature in this exhibition. And and for me, I, I don't mean like I'm awesome. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm there, you know, and, and some of the old timers are there. And we're looking at War of the Gargantua stuff and Jiro, who was part of Inoue's team, he's like, this is me mm. as a young guy. And I have this photo of us pointing at the thing. And Miyako <laughs> loves, that's one of her favorite Frankenstein Conquerors of the World that she feels is one of the more, that and Matango are like the two horror kind of kaiju films because she's a yeah, big horror person. Fantastic. And it's just yeah, like yeah. really great to be like, oh no, I, you know, I've I've come to know these guys. And, uh, and you know, Takagi, one of the other guys that was on his crew, I mean, they did all the Destroy All Monsters, all the stuff I loved. And, and you know, and it's just nice that I can do something and they're grateful for it and they thank me for it, you know? And I, and I feel like in a way where I'm helping to bridge that, you know, relationship, like when Inoue's 
wife died, Reiko, when, when she passed away, I went to the funeral and it was like, I'm the only foreigner there. And I felt a responsibility. In a way, it's funeral. I'm the only foreigner there, you know, and I, I felt a responsibility that I have to represent us, you know, there. It's not just like, you know, like, oh, I'm so awesome. Going to those things is not enjoyable. I feel a little self-conscious because I'm the only foreigner there, you know, and it's not like right. I'm I'm there like, yo, bros, let's party it up. It's kaiju time and it's not kaiju time. It's kind of work in a lot of ways. So i sorry, there's such a long-winded uh, no, response, I, I, but, I mean, you know, don't let people say that because I've seen your posts. I don't feel that you're like braggart time. It's, you know, it's enthusiasm. And usually there are people who do braggart kind of stuff, but you can tell. You can tell when they they don't share information about the person that you're. That's what I tried to do in my book. You know, I, right. I mean, I tried to do like I said. My rule was if you can't say anything about the person, don't just mention them. You know, so I made right. sure that I could kind of flesh out the person, and that's my response to people who have that criticism. They'll always have that criticism, and that's their problem. You know, it's not my problem. It's not. I, your I think problem. that's honestly the healthiest way to interact with that mentality. That's your problem. I just remembered my birthday in 2019 because for like several years in a row, I was in Japan on my birthday. Again, it's just the way it shook out. And I never like presume that anyone's going to make time for it. If I'm lucky, if I get like a, like two or three folks that I could be like, Hey, let's, let's go to dinner or something, you know, that then that's great. You know, whatever. Or, you know, maybe they can't, maybe nobody can make it out. Cause it's a weekday, which is always a pain in the ass, especially when you're in Japan. And I remembered that day I was thinking like, I'll be, you know, I'm going to go to Kaiju Sakaba. If, even if nobody shows up, I'm going there. Uh, the one in Kawasaki. And I remembered Nishikawa, Shinji showed up, Daisuke Sato showed up, a friend of mine, uh, Sakamoto-san, who's a Transformers comic arc, Transformers manga artist, he showed up, you know, the Kaidas showed up, I'm just like, oh my god, like, I, t I actually took a minute to be like, I had to kind of reflect on it for a little bit, especially afterwards, like in the moment, you're just like, hey, you know, and you're all drinking and having a good time. It sounds like you're, you're grateful that they came out. I was very grateful when I remembered, I wanted to make a post about it, you know, but I didn't want it to seem like I was, you know, I didn't want it to feel like I was bragging specifically because I'm just like, oh my God. So I made it, I specifically said, I don't consider myself lucky because I just try to make sure that I surround myself with interesting people. And I am grateful that those people see something in me that they also like and appreciate. It's not like, I'm so lucky, I'm so lucky. It's like, I am grateful. I'm grateful that the work I have put into these relationships has paid off in ways that like, there's no obligation for these renowned artists to come to my birthday, to my little birthday get together. Right. But they did. And that says something. And, you know, here I am over here, like for the longest time, I'm just like, I don't think Nishikawa likes me very much. You know, I'm just some dumb, I'm just some dumb kid from Texas. I don't think he likes me. Meanwhile, he's, he's come to like three of my birthday things. And like, he's, he's a very nice guy, you know? And oh yeah. He's a very hard worker. Oh so, yeah. You know, he's a very uh, hard worker. Wish he would work a little less hard. Cause I think he's put him himself in the hospital a few times yeah no I, he actually did a thing not to stop your story i was doing it's this okay. the worst film i ever did it was like a 10 minute film i don't even want to mention it but i needed, <laughs> I needed, needed some storyboards 
and he did a bunch of storyboards just for nothing. Here you go. Uh, and yeah, we got together and he was like very sweet. I saw him a couple months ago. Miyako had a stand at Brave and Bold. Yeah, that's the that little one. Yeah, over like in Yokohama or mm -hmm. Kawasaki, maybe. And, um, you know, they usually have foreign artists like they hadn't done it in a while, but it was only Japanese. I mean, Peach yeah, Momoko was there, so I know her very well. She's a big sweetheart. And, and uh, Nishikawa was there. He was actually like two two seats down from us. And we had that other kaiju woman artist. Ninsai-san? Yeah, yeah. She was right next to me. She did a live drawing and she sold her live drawing for like 800 bucks. I'm like, damn, I, I got to learn how to draw. <laughs> <laughs> You're the wrong racket. <laughs> yeah. Ninsai-san is, she is what I would describe as a character. She's the biggest Godzilla fan I know. Yeah, and, I would say and, so. There's another one. She calls herself Mayoko and she's a big Tezuka fan. Mandarake had some event last year and me and Miyako sh shared a table at it, right? That's where I met her. She's written like some little fan books on Tezuka and she's a big kaiju fan. And I sat across her. She was so nervous seeing me because I was in Tokyo SOS. I have my two second cameo in Tokyo SOS, but she gave me this. Check this out. Speaking of fans, and I'm holding up one of those Uchiwa Japanese fans, and this says, uh -huh. this in Japanese says Tezuka Gumi, Team Tezuka. But check oh. out the other side, okay? Are you ready? <laughs> and what so we're looking at, it's a fan with Tezuka's photo on. It says uh, Masaki Tezuka, and has a little like clip art of a camera and a slate. And it says, A movie is a textbook of the lives. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and it says that in Japanese on the Ego wa Jinsei no Kaite Aru. That probably is the kanji for textbook, which I can't that read is... that kanji. But oh, but anyway, so, she, so she's like, I just have to say, the artist woman has female challenger in Mayoko. And, and I was happy to see that she was credited on this that just came out, the GMK completion book. She's really like Tezuka a lot. So she's like this big Tezuka fan and... And she's written a couple fan book things, doing interviews with him and stuff. And I picked up two of them from her. Very sweet. So it's always nice, you know, and I and my friend Alyssa, we had a little conversation. She hates the thing about when people say there aren't enough female fans in the fandom. And OK, she complains that people would even think that. But I do think that. And I wrote a piece I used to write for a magazine called Ega Hiho, which just ceased publication this month. Yeah. But I did a story about, I was working on a, a Iguchi movie. I did the subtitles and I had a, I was a priest in the film for like a marriage scene. On the way back, there are these four girls that were in like kind of maid outfits. And I'm talking to one and she's like, I'm like, what kind of films do you like? She's like, I love Lucio Fulci you know, Gates of Hell, a zombie. I'm like, nice. oh, man. And I wrote a hee-ho piece about how back in my day, back in the 80s, it was like in the 70s, you go to these horror cons and they're like, is there a woman anywhere, somewhere? You know, you, it was like a ratio of like 5%, you know, and now it's like boosted up, especially in, in horror and zombie things. So it's become more integrated. That's the only, it's, you know, more accessible. And that's the thing, right. like with Kaiju, like I'm really into the Romero stuff and it, it's bewildering for me when I go back to the U.S. and in Pennsylvania, white country, where it's <laughs> like, where are the African-American fans? I mean, Night of the Living Dead is one of the real films that features, you know, an African-American and it doesn't treat him as 
being a minority or anything. You know, it was scripted without a concept of black or white. And they picked Dwayne Jones, you know, the actor who who played Ben in the film, just because he was the best actor. And it didn't really... I think it's so pure the way they approached it, but it was a very important role. And all of Romero's films have always predominantly featured, you know, a, a black character in the main thing. I'm like, where are our African-American fans? And I said that once and everyone, and I'm not saying like people aren't prejudiced. Most Romero fans, the ones that I know are very open, you know, and because Romero himself was, you know, a very liberal guy and had lots of liberal ideas and a uh, very people person. And they all looked at me though, like, huh? Like what? Uh, I'm like, I said something, don't you think it's weird given how important, you know, black Americans are in Romero's films that we're our black friends in this, you know? And, and I, I would feel better. The only real blacks I see are the actors when they're guests at these things, you know? And yeah, I don't want to open a can of worms because Anything when you talk about this stuff can be misinterpreted and and sure and I but I sometimes feel like with the kaiju stuff you know it's like I'm always grateful when it's a non-white person or I mean I'm talking about Western fandom you know sure, or sure. it's like a non-male you know well just somebody who's not who doesn't fit into what for the longest time has been considered the dominant nerds in these spaces i mean you're right it's a can of worms and you know we could probably again spend a couple of hours well talking you know about and especially it. me you know i'm older than you and i grew up at a time you know like i would go to marvel did two cons in this in like 75 76 you know that's where i i i could meet ramita senior john ramita i got him to draw me a spider-man for nothing you know jack kirby i talked to a, a bunch of times i got like five of his autographs on things for like whatever Jeez. stan lee you know I think I wrote that in my book. Stan Lee wrote me a school excuse because I skipped school yeah, on a Friday. That's you know? a good story. I like that and, a lot. But those things were like, yeah, just a bunch of white guys hanging out, you know, and it seemed like that was the way it was. And this is why I just have to say I take offense to that whole idea of make America great again, because, yes, <laughs> I do miss the 60s. I do miss the 70s. But I also, on the other hand, feel bad. I didn't realize at the time our African-American brothers and sisters were going through at the time. I mean, I knew there was stuff, especially with the rural purge on TV, when they got rid of stuff like Mayberry RFD and they got rid of those things and they made more inner city stories, you know, and films started to actually show us who were living in a very sheltered world. And so I wouldn't be like, yeah, we got to go back to the 60s. I miss the creativity and I miss the energy. My parents were very much against Vietnam and I'd go down to marches on Washington back in the 60s with my folks. And my, my dad was a jazz musician and you know all his heroes were African-Americans. And I'm, I'm old enough that we called African-Americans Negroes when I was still a kid. And my dad, one day, I guess I was like in first or second day grade. And my dad is like, Norman, I don't want you to use that word anymore. You got to call them blacks. So I had to like, okay. And I, and I think I have a little bit, my dad was telling me, you know, use the word man. He taught me how to use cool. He taught me how to use man. He, he taught me to use blacks. And now blacks, of course, have been replaced with African-Americans. And it's a little interchangeable if you know how, how, yeah. how to go about it. But I mean, no, I mean, I've seen a lot of positive changes. And sure, while I do miss those errors, there are things that 
would make me not want to go back to those eras, you know? And, and one of those is, and I'm happy about, say, Romero fandom or Kaiju fandom, seeing, you know, more women around that are really embracing this stuff, that it, it shows that there is more, I don't want to say human diversity, but there is stuff that not just the white guys can relate to, <laughs> can enjoy, you know, and... I don't want to no, get no. somebody like attacking me on Twitter for not saying it in the right way, but you you know what I mean. I mean you. I mean it's important to understand. Again, it's important to understand its context, and that's hard to do on something like Twitter where you can just take a snippet out of context. But you know, you laid it out there. You know what your feelings are, and I think it, my my interpretation has always been: if you're arguing in good faith, it's always a bridge to better understanding. And and we are very, in a lot of ways, very fortunate that the the doors have kind of been kicked open. It, while it is true, yes, it's more accessible now, and we are getting a wider range of fans, a wider range of people who enjoy this stuff. We also people are kind of allowed in a way to admit that they've always been into it and admit they've always been, it's they, a lot of them have always been uh, fans of it in some capacity because, you know, I guarantee you there were people back then in the sixties and seventies who would have been just as big of fans of this stuff. If they felt like it was something for them or they felt culturally like they weren't pressured to think that it's not for them. And I think that we've come around a lot on that. Not even speaking about, varieties of people, flavors, whatever, you know, but <laughs> just the general disrespect for science fiction, it was always considered crap, you know, and, and that's what I mean, like going to see 2001 was really like, man, changed everything, you know, I, I was sure. like, of course, when 2001 came out, I was nine, you know, and I'd been into this stuff, I was into Lost in Space, I was into Star Trek, anything, Saturday afternoon was always filled with 50s sci-fi, but it was always, you know, it was laughed at about this stuff, because we didn't have those Marvel Universe things, you needed your imagination back then to fill in the holes, mm -hmm. but 2001 was really the first film you know, that and Planet of the Apes oh, but sure. even more so 2001 even though people couldn't really understand the story, but it was like but they knew it was like an intellectual thing. It looked mm -hmm. beautiful. It wasn't like these. I mean, some of those sequences, I, I've watched the film so many times, but like the moon bus, the way it's shot mm -hmm. and the, oh my God, some of the stuff look a little flattish from today's point of view, like a cardboard thing sliding across <laughs> the screen. Yeah. But there's other stuff in that that is so breathtaking. And it was really, suddenly it was like, okay, as technology is catching up with the film effects, it's like, okay, now the respect is beginning. People will be, they might not like it themselves personally, but they can't laugh at you for like hideous sun demon and the ridiculous outfit in that or something <laughs> like that. And this is the thing I was actually just writing uh, Jules Carosa's book. I wrote the foreword yeah, for that. I've got that over here too. Well, his new one comes coming out. It's a Japanese special effects cinema of Godfathers of Tokusatsu. Oh, do you have a copy of that? Yeah, I got it right here. I and got is, it. Came in. It's my in, forward it in, in that. I had to have even. Oh it, God, it, I think it, it, it is. says forward by Norman England. Hold okay, on, let me well, make there, sure there, it's there, I just wrote there. that. Like, there it is. Okay, I just wrote that like ten days ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> but one it's of the out. things, one of the things I wrote in that was going back to kaiju films. That even as a kid, 
I thought that the Toho output looked better than the U.S. output. Even Rodan, you look at Rodan, looked a lot better than any science fiction that was coming out of the U.S. You know, it was all super low budget stuff. Okay, maybe you could say Forbidden Planet. You know, we had a couple little anomalies here and there. Um, right. George Powell stuff, you know, looked good. But it was really like, I don't think people seem to remember that so much because we tend to focus on you know more modern day stuff or things after 2001 but yeah that toho stuff looked really good going that's why i said i saw war of the gargantuas three times in the theater that stuff looked great you know it's like i'm not getting that from the u.s films if the terror from beyond space is one of my favorite films you know i mean i like how the creature looks and and i like just the shot of the ship like floating through space. There were nothing to write. I could do those effects if I really wanted to, you know? And I like yeah. the stories. I mean, the stories are really good, but they were very under-budgeted. It was a studio film. Well, okay, and the guys on the crew, what am I doing today? They just, every day, they'd go and work on a film, you know? And Toho was the same way back then, until 72, where everyone became freelancers. You know, everyone got laid off. Yeah, those Toho films really looked good, you know, compared to the U.S. ones. I used to really bristle whenever people would talk about Japanese films, even even more recent stuff that still doesn't have that super intense high fidelity production value that American stuff has, uh, especially when it comes to older stuff. I try to always make a point rather than getting defensive or getting or bristle just to make a point of how, well, the difference is, is that they went for it. Like they're just, they're going for it. Like no one else. That's exactly what like I this. wrote inside my forward. Yeah. I'm like, I wrote yes. this about Mothra. I said, you know, when Mothra is flying through Newkirk city and cars are whipping around in the air in no way that looks real, but it looks no. cool. And these guys are like be, looking cool is more important than looking real because the studios are more worried. Like, okay, we're going to look fake. We're going to look cheap. And they were, they were more concerned with like the reputation while the Japanese are just like, this is cool. You know, and and they yeah. weren't they weren't afraid to get a little, and I hate the word, but I'm going to use it cheesy. They weren't afraid of mm -hmm. it, you know, because sure. it was so much fun. And I found those films, especially like the Showa ones back then, they had this fun factor that was not in the U.S. ones. So I love the U.S. ones as well, but there were you know the Hammer films, and they all looked beautiful. The photography on the things, but the, I mean these Toho ones and. To a little extent, the Gamera films, you know, but they really had this. When I say, yeah, Toho, I mean, Mysterians, I mean, all of those films. Oh, yeah. They had this look about them. And that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I think also that, you know, that idea right from the get-go, even though like guys like Ed Gajicheski are older than me and they, they knew them more in real time than I really did, but they were met with prejudice right away. And I was going to get in this into this in the forward, but I didn't really have the space to do it because I was trying to not go on like this podcast is going on. <laughs> but um, my feeling is that Hollywood saw these films as a threat. Toho did not really have PR representation. They were sending the film through a, a smaller distributor. They just wanted to exploit the films as much as possible. Hollywood had all their writers and everything that could so it would always be unfair you get yeah george powell film do you know how many people worked on this thing they would really overemphasize 
And the, the effects are identical in the same kind of miniatures and stuff. But, I mean, War of the, the Worlds, you can see the strings on every freaking Martian ship flying. But the way that they would present the PR, you know, the Japanese didn't have that. You know, they weren't represented in that same way. And I really feel, thinking about it when I was writing the foreword for, for um, his book, that, yeah, you know, if they had had that same kind of PR push and you know how many people work on these films and how much time was spent on these things, except it was just like, it was dismissive before they even saw the film, you know? And that dismissiveness has stuck and it's not as great as it used to be because there are more, say, fans and there are more people who realize through education that it wasn't this cheap crap, you know, that it was portrayed as being no it's really annoying when people say that and it's i don't know for me it's like i don't have time to deal with people like that and i don't deal with people like that i mean i'm i'm the, kind of the same way if i can tell that somebody is possibly open minded you know i'll dive into it you know my whole spiel a lot of which i've also taken from uh, david callet's writing this idea of, you know, this Western obsession with realism and with something that has to be believable. And if it's not believable, it's perceived as, as a mistake. And that always kind of gets on my nerves because you're denying yourself a really fun or really interesting experience. God damn it, Norman. This part here is something I feel like we could go on for another two yeah, hours. No, I, I, I just I just want to say, like, you know, I mean, it's yeah. a painting. It's the same thing like looking at an Edward Hopper painting, which makes you see the American culture in a completely different way. I'm sure you're familiar with Hopper's kind of emptiness and use of space and makes you see life in a completely different way. Okay, great. If realism's your only thing, get a goddamn camera. I mean, then we don't need paintings. You know, I feel the same way about cinema. And this is one of the things I have a problem with today's films that try with CG so much, like their goal is just this mimicking reality, and it doesn't even mimic reality. That's the thing. It, 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 it's like this illusion of reality. And the Toho stuff, and even the American miniature stuff from back then, um, and European stuff, you know, the ITC stuff, I mean, it's an interpretation of reality. It makes you see reality in a different way. If people can't appreciate that, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, okay, fine. Go watch the game on TV, you know? I mean, we're obviously, we have different priorities in life. So that's just my feelings on, on the subject. And I, I really can't, at this point in my life, fine, whatever, go watch the new Marvel Universe. It'll look really great. I find them slightly soulless but if that's the thing you're into and that's your priority you know go for it. and there are people who like both honestly i think that's a really good point to uh kind of kind of wrap things up on because i think we're coming up on this might be one of the longest gigantic casts <laughs> okay. i've done well we got two great. big talkers here so yeah i, I mean, mean i did want to talk i don't know i mean i want to talk about my film the idol um, I wanted, oh, yeah. but just to say briefly, you know, I appreciate, I know you, you picked it up recently and yeah. you watched it and, and I appreciate that. And you saw Crossfire and I know that's really great. Uh, I would also in Kaneko's films, you might want to check out one of his, which is Summer Vacation 1999, which is the film he really became famous for, which is about these boys on summer vacation having to go in and I haven't seen it in like 30 years, but uh, they have screenings. It still remains one of his most popular films. But one of the things he did was he got actresses to play boys 
in high school, uh, high school oh, boys kind in of the a film. Takarazuka type of uh, uh, something like like that, yeah. and that that's a very good film. That's the film that put him on the cinematic map, so to speak. Yeah. Did you like my film? I I did. I did in my spot? notes here. I what <laughs> to oh. put you on the spot. No, no, I was, it was one of the things I was kind of waiting to really dig into until we talked about it. And I mean, you know, there's nothing that says we can't just do a part two down the line of this, uh, of this, uh, of this show, but, uh, endless speakers anyways. Yeah. But what I will say is that it's very telling that Yagi-san liked your movie so much and considered you for an Ultraman directing gig because I, I was watching the movie and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I really was surprised how much I liked it. I guess I just had no idea what to expect. I went in completely blind. I remember thinking about it and I'm like, what is it about this that is procking my brain or something about this? And I'm like, it feels like an Ultraman episode. It feels like an episode of like Ultra Q, specifically Ultra Q, like this Twilight Zone-esque story, but through that kind of Japanese lens, which makes it an Ultra Q episode. And that's one of the reasons why I liked it so much. In addition to it just being like clever and fun, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, this must have been 30, 40, 50 grand at least. And you here you are saying like, oh yeah, 10 grand. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. If I had like legitimately paid everybody, right. it, it would have been like that. It's like Roger Corman said that when you tell people it's your first film, they do a lot of things as favors for you. So he did. He told everyone his first 10 films was his first film. And that's how he <laughs> could keep the, the, the cost down. Now, I, I was lucky because, like, for example, I got all this Panasonic equipment and these lens things. And I went up to the Panasonic office, me and my producer, and we talked to them. And they're like, OK, we want to support your project. So they called the big rental house. And they said, we want you guys to do a favor. We went and we met with the boss. And he was like, you know. I don't want to do this because they gave us rental. So we had like 10 day rental on all the equipment. They charged us for a single day. And the guy's like, I don't want to do this, but Panasonic is forcing me to do this. So just get out of here. Oh man. I was really lucky. It was just before we shot it SD. So it wasn't really HD, but we used like 35 millimeter lens kit, like a cinematic lens kit. So it, it was really sharp. You know, that's why it looks better than if we had just shot it on like a handy cam kind of thing. And I had a, a like legitimate crew. And I remember like, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd been on a bunch of sets, but the first day of shooting was at the park, the park scene with Ken and Mayuko. And like they're kind of meeting there and I get there and Yamazaki, you know, the guy who did always sunset on yeah, whatever street. He's doing that new thing. And he's Toho doing some new too. Kaiju film who did the Godzilla, the ride and we we yeah. actually went together. I sat next to him when we watched that. Oh, you know, that's fun. Really fun. <laughs> but no, Yamazaki, he's in my book too when I first meet him. But um, Yamazaki yeah. did the CG, the limited, I have like four or five shots that he did for me for the thing. But the first actor that I shot was him. He's the still cameraman cameo oh. on that. And, and so we all met up at Mita Park in Tokyo. And I remember like this truck pulls in and these guys i don't know come out with all this equipment and they're setting up i'm like oh is this my movie oh this is kind of <laughs> this is kind of all, my producer arranged all of that i mean i knew the cameraman i knew a couple people you know but i'm like damn can i really handle this you know like this is really cool and i and i handled it you know i mean it was yeah trying and i actually man i had such a good time shooting it and we had to do it in a couple phases so that first phase was like 
10 days and I had to go back in and add some more stuff. I hadn't done the ending scene. I did. And the ending scene was a little downsized from how I had it. Kakusei was going to do another alien for me, but we didn't really have the time to get it together. So that actually, that outfit at the ending, the alien at the ending, you can't really see his face, but that outfit is from a Kitamura, like Kakusei did way before Final Wars, another kind of like... Oh, it wasn't Versus, was it? No, it was, it was after Versus. I was his first one. He did this other film and those and Kakusei worked on it. And those are the outfits, the guys. Kakusei <laughs> brought it and he like cut it all up and fit it onto the actor on the thing. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And actually, that's there, here's another Godzilla connection, the flooring that he's sitting on. I got that from Taguchi and that was flooring that he had picked up from the Godzilla set that was because he was doing these like low budget films. I, I, right. I was an actor in a couple of them. I played in one of Taguchi's films. I played the prime minister of Japan. I'm jumping all over. I, I get assassinated yeah. in it. I get assassinated. And when we're shooting it, like I get shot, I'm on the ground. He goes, Norman, I got a line I want you to say, and you don't have to say it if you find it offensive, but I'd really like you to say fucking Jap. So, oh, <laughs> so I'm dying and I'm on the ground and I go, fucking chap. I, and, and oh. I was like the foreign prime minister of Japan. So that's so insane. I mean, Taguchi has such a wild sense of he's he's got a wild sense of humor and I've loved everything that I've seen him make. But he, I'm just I'm, saying he gave me this. Uh, and when they were doing his first one, his G film. You know, I, right. I want I saw some shooting. He had picked he had taken up this thing from Toho that they were throwing out. And I have that when they're throwing stuff out and, and Taguchi and me, we're, we're taking little souvenirs from the set. I've got like little GMK, I, just right here from GMK. These are little, here's a little oh. light, here's a little light post here. Oh I don't know what God. that, oh, this is on that docks, the dock when it gets blown up. Oh. Yeah, and this is, this is actually written in my book. This is like this little gate thing, Yuri, Yuripi the one of the the girls the women excuse me on the she's like oh i made that and th this is for me and taguchi when we were going through and picking out little junk but he gave me this thing they would do this take like burlap they would get these big pieces of burlap and paste and spray paint it and paste little like foam rubber things that would look like rocks on the thing so i oh. use that he's actually the actor and the idol is sitting on this big square of that and then we just copy pasted it around to make it look bigger so that's actually a, a piece of godzilla set that's on at the very ending of the thing <laughs> And that scene also is one of the things that makes it feel like an Ultraman or Ultra Q or whatever episode, a Super Aya thing, because that's how they, that's one of the ways they do a lot of aliens. It's like if they don't want to make like a full suit, usually they just put somebody in a robe and obscure their face, put some set dressing around them and bam, you got an alien planet. And the, so the background too, Bob Eggleton did two matte paintings on the, I call them matte paintings. And Yamazaki was like, here, let me do this. I'll do this alien digital alien thing. It'll look so realistic. I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'll have a career making films, but from here on, I'll never be able to do a real matte painting again. And I got my friend who's a fantastic artist. He's, he's, he said he'll do, so he did like this background thing, which is actually a takeoff on the, when worlds collide, the George Powell mm -hmm. film on the very ending, when they, they arrive on the planet and they look out and it's just like this beautiful matte painting. And I had Bob do a slightly interpretation of that on that. So people who get it would get it. But I yeah. wanted to really, and I had to like refuse Yamazaki's offer to do a oh. CG thing because I wanted 
Bob's matte painting and he did, Bob did such a, a wonderful job with it. Yeah, it was a good experience. And going back to my director friend, Saruta, I said, who did like Ring Zero and some other, and other yeah. big, he's like the real J-horror creator guy, not so much Shimizu and Nakata, though they, they get the credit, but it's really Tsuruta. But when I was finished with the film, he came to the last day of shooting just to hang out. Um, we did all that shooting on the very last scene at a film college and they let us use the studio. And I left the alien there, the opening alien. I left that at the studio. And then like 10 years later, I met some students who were like, that alien's still there. And it's the school mascot. Oh, that's so great. But Saruta was there. so And then we got together after that. And he goes, so how did you like the film? I said, you know, shooting. I was like, you know, I had such a good time. I'd have to say like 90% of it was great. And he's like, are you serious? Because the general rule, my personal rule is like, if I get 25% enjoyment, I think that's good. It's like, it's unheard of. <laughs> and I'll have to say this. I mean, bringing Godzilla down to size was a lot of fun. And that was also enjoyable. But I've done, you know, these other semi features you know like new neighbor and i'm I'm happy with it came out but man i would not label that fun that's one of the reasons i haven't really shot anything since i've written scripts but you know i i just can't go through the system and there's not enough money here in japan and there's many reasons not just because i don't think think i have it what it takes to make a decent film but I just I just can't go through the system again. I, and I think I was naive enough with the idol that I, I, I did that to sort of challenge myself. Like, can I come up with something? And, and to go back to our mutual friend, uh, Sagaya, it was Sagaya that made me pick the story that I, I picked. Every movie I've always done, it's always I start with, like, what do I have to work with? Who do I have to work with? And I'm like, well, I got this friend of mine and he's a figure maker so what if i did a story that was based around a figure you know and then i contact him it's like i i have this sort of an idea but i want to use like this alien figure thing and can you make me a figure so he made me a figure i didn't really like it it wasn't really what i was looking for and then no offense to him because he's a great artist great figure maker and i probably could have worked it out that i was happier but then I went with Bill Gudmundson, who's also a very good figure maker. And I spent a lot of time redesigning, 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 doing hundreds of drawings until I came up with this thing. And then I was very naive that he had sent me this clay thing. And it was, I was horrified by what, what I, and I was like, what is that? He goes, obviously you're not familiar with the process because it was just like, he goes, don't worry. This is just like, this like brown clay thing. And I think that's what Sagai gave me originally. And I was really like unfamiliar with the process. So I didn't really, oh, oh that's what you want. That's not what I want. I'm going to go with someone else. So I, I feel a little bad. Sagai didn't really take a, he, you know, he, he's a pretty sweet guy, you know. But I have yeah. to say this about Sagai. If he doesn't like you, you're going to know it. Like the people that he likes, he's the sweetest guy in the world. But man, Sure. He, there are people he doesn't like here. And it's like, oh, okay. Didn't know the guy was like, like Nako in my book, the still cameraman, sweet, sweet, sweet. And then when they yeah. showed me the GMK poster before him, it was like, oh shit, this guy can get angry. You know? <laughs> I, it really surprised me that, that, I mean, it's just, oh, but anyway, man. I'm jumping I, all over so... the place, but it, no, I just no, wanted no. to mention about like, yeah, with the idol that that was for me, it was a learning process. Um, It was enjoyable. The film, all things considered, you know, came out well. 
Um, Otani did a great score. I was very lucky that also in the middle of the movie, I used that Jane Winfield song. You know, Jane is part of the Go-Go's. That was a a miracle that I got her to let me use that song in the thing because I was editing it with, and I had this like montage thing. And so I love this song from this movie called Night of the Creeps. It's, It's in this little like party scene. And so I, me and the editor are editing it to this. And he's like, are you going to get the rights to this song? I'm like, that's yeah, fine. He goes, no, I don't want to re-edit to a different song. <laughs> and I'm, and I had a guy in Japan was sending me songs that I could get from new bands. I hated them all. And then I did the screw it. I'm using this song without checking. And I did the Fantasia screening with, with this piece of music in it. And then I managed to contact her manager in LA. It was really difficult. It wasn't like we didn't have the social media back in 2005, you know, on the internet though, I found out who she was represented by contacted them. And they said, we no longer represent Jane, but you can contact her at this, I guess, thing. And I wrote her like a five page handwritten letter. And I had a little good feeling because she was a Star Trek fan. She's my age. And she wrote back the sweetest thing. And she was like, I I apologize. I said, I used your song. I did the screening. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to the film, but I feel, you know, that I have to. Here's a copy. I sent a copy of the film. and, And like a month later, I got a response like, you know, it's like everyone, all they think about is money. And I watched your film. I love your film. I feel so honored to have my song because it was released by Sony. It's on like a Sony thing, you know, just use it. I don't want anything. Just use the song. And then she wrote me later. I I went back home. I showed the film to my parents and my parents. We all love the film. And it's so cool that my song, I'm like this chick, she founded the Go-Go's, you know, like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I said the word chick. It's, it's my generation. She wrote to me back and it's like, and if you ever need an actress, I could do like a Raymond Burr thing. Oh, you know, that's so she was so also a Godzilla fun. fan, you know, even though I didn't mention oh, Godzilla. You know? That's so, so fun. When I did the S the SRS release, I hadn't contacted her in a long time and I wrote her. Her staff got back to me and they're like, we'll talk to Jane. She never got back to me. And I was like, okay, I guess it's fine. I, I have her email saying it's fine, but I've understood that she's very easygoing, very sweet, and not really like there are other groups, not so much the group's faults, but the management, they're like, take this down off of YouTube, take this off, take this off. And I was just lucky that I found, I love this song. It fit my film. And the person who wrote and recorded the song was completely a-okay with it being in the film. And it really was like, that was another thing that made me like feel grateful. So I'm so lucky that I've managed to you know, I don't consider myself very successful, but I've done my thing in the best way that I can with the resources that I've had. And I, I look at the idol as I actually enjoy watching it. You know, I've got other films I've done. It's like, I can't dredge up those memories, you know, and I did have, I did have some trouble on the idol, you know, but even so, you know, I've made friendships that I still have today on that. And that's the thing, you know, I'm sure you can relate collaborating with other people. That's the real joy of this thing, you know, film and a little more than the comic book way. But, but anyway, I just wanted to mention a little bit of the idol because I know you no, saw it. And I wanted to say thank you for, for watching it and, and not hating it. So. No, <laughs> no, no. I'm really glad I watched it. I'm glad that you went ahead and just said, let's just talk about it. Cause I did want to talk about it and just, just, I could easily see us you know, doing another 
another episode like this and talking more about even more stuff because you have a wealth of experiences that I really do feel that people would really benefit from hearing, you know, especially people in our little corner of the internet. And it kills me to say that we probably need to wrap this up because I just, fine. Yeah, fine. one, I've got to go to the bathroom. And two, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I knew two, you were going to say that because I feel the same way. And I got a subtitle. That I've got to get back to my subtitle. Yeah. You got these crazy deadlines. I mean, I've got deadlines too. I know that we could go for another few hours after a bathroom break. I really appreciate you taking the time. It no, means a lot. No, yeah, man. So behind the Kaiju curtain, a journey into onto Japan's biggest film sets. It's on Amazon. If you speak English, you know, it's so awesome. That it's coming out in Japanese as well. Your film, the idol is still available from SRS cinema. Is there anything else you want to plug? Anything else you want to let the people know about? No, just to uh, be kind to each other, especially on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm working on other things, and I have my Facebook thing, but I'm I, I seem to be more active on Twitter just because people can just follow you indiscriminately. So I I tend right. to try not to get political or anything, and I, I I've been sharing some set photos kind of towing the line on what I can get get away <laughs> with because I really like photography and I don't just set share set photos I also share photos of Japan you know and sure. you know and I have other things that are coming out in Japan more movies that I'm subtitling I just did a piece on Hirara. The X from Outer Space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The X from Outer Space. Yeah. I just did a piece on that for this Japanese fanzine and that's coming out at the end of the month. And I, I'm going to have to write about that on Twitter. But I mean, I really want to do another English book. I've got plenty of Japanese books. You know, like I said, I've got these Millennium other films, you know, and my sure. my vision for my next book like this is I've been to like 60 film and TV sets in Japan, at least. So I, I want to pick like the cream of those and do like a chapter of film. So not necessarily in the same style of this, but, you know, I was on this crappy film and this is what I had to deal with. And then I was on this awesome film, you know, like I was a still photographer on Kaneko's uh, Danger Dolls, which was a kind of co-US film. I don't know if you've seen that. I really like the film. Very low budget. Man, what a great set. I mean, so much fun. And we didn't like work late. You know, it was like the latest we had, like, I don't know, if, you know, the actress Irina Takeda. She was in Attack on Titan, the potato eating mm. girl. Oh, right on. But I've worked with her on a couple films and she's very sweet. I got her the gig on this. And nice. the one night we had late, we had to do some night shots and we went to like 930. And in this industry, it's like, I mean, you work till I've worked on films where we work until two in the morning and set call is 6 a.m. You know, and I had one film that I had done and I got one hour sleep. I mean, literally, I, I I go into my room and it's like 5 a.m., be downstairs at 6. I'm like, what's the point? So anyway, my point is, I'm, you know me, I'm jumping all over the place, but I want to do a book that's kind of like with that. And I'll have the other Godzilla films that I was involved in, but I, I can't do another Behind the Kaiju Curtain 2 and then do Tokyo SOS because it'll be more Godzilla centric, and the, I think the audience will be even smaller for the book right. than it than it is right now. But anyway, that's the type of thing I'm working yeah. on, and it's always you know tinkering. I did the thing for Jules that that just came out, his Godfather's yeah. of Tokusatsu, and that was fun to do. And um, yeah, no, I want to do more 
support other people in the U.S., you know, and I'm always reachable. You know, people write to me and they ask me stupid questions and sometimes they ask me <laughs> good questions, but I try to be as respectful as possible. And like I said, you know, you know, I'm a reporter. So my job is to go to these things, have an experience, talk to people and then report on it. Yeah. Anyone wants to follow me, they can look at my crap that's on Twitter. Anyway, so let's wrap this up. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, let's do a part two somewhere down the line when we both sure. get our energy back together. And again, thank you very much for having me on your podcast there, Matt. Well, thank you very much again. for. And I want Morgan on the next one with us. <laughs> that might be the dynamic there might be really weird. But I, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have to see about that. Um, yeah, that's yeah. a, well, that would be a, that would be a, that'd be a kicker. We, we could um, gang up with you on King of the Monsters. So. Look, I'm not going to sit here and die on that hill. Okay. <laughs> I just thought the music was good. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again. That's Norman C. England on uh, Twitter, right? Uh, Yeah. Thank you again, Norman. I believe we're now both going to go back to work. Okay, great.